From my barnyard to yours, it's The Other Animals for December 2022. I had to think about that for a minute. Hey, welcome everyone. Uh, it's been a little while since we've uh, since we've been together, but uh, catching up here. We got a lot to do. We have two good feature-length interviews, so I'm not gonna I'm gonna dispense with some of the uh, usual stuff that we do. We're gonna be talking with um, Joe Anderson from Fonalytics. You may remember we spoke with her uh, about a year, year and a half ago. Uh, very fascinating uh, organization. They actually put, if you pardon the pun, the meat behind uh, a lot of what uh, animal advocacy groups do in terms of statistics and actual research that really helps those organizations substantiate the things that they that they're espousing. Right? It's one thing to be very emotional and say. Uh, it should be enough, but and one thing to say, you know, this this is a reason why you should not, where you should, you know, espouse a vegan outlook or whatever. But it's another thing when you can actually have the the facts and the figures to back that up, and that's what the Faunalytics does. Uh, Joanne's going to be actually talking about a uh, a very uh, interesting study that they did, which concerns. Uh, you know, we talk about. Um, animal legislation a lot and particularly we have on this movie had congressmen on, on the program and uh you know we think about it on, on the either the, the least the state level because we're certainly talking about the ag gag laws those are state laws and we certainly talk about it at the federal level with the animal welfare act but uh, the recent study that was just published by uh by joanne by joe's group uh, faunalytics uh references the local level and what an amazing impact that has and some some you know, aspects we think, well, that's that's in line, but we tend to overlook the uh, the the local legislation, the local. You know, all politics is local, but when it comes to uh, animal um, issues, it's critical. And uh, Joe's going to talk about that. Uh, we're also going to have a, a really good in-depth interview with with my partner. I like doing this once in a while. I don't think we do it enough with Dr. Don McCart of All Pets House Calls. And uh, the annual conference of veterinarians uh, was recently held at the University of Pennsylvania. Um, the vaccine research that was done, not uh, on behalf of, uh, not not research for animals, you know, for humans, but for themselves, and the, you know, what the what the vaccine uh, status is, because guess what, our our pets and pretty much every animal can get COVID just like we can with the same deadly effects. And the fact that there's so much research, so much thought has gone into uh, what, what, how this impacts uh, came out at this conference, and uh, Dr. Tom is going to fill us in uh, with that. So I'm not going to belabor this. Let's, uh, let's get started here. This is uh, Joe Anderson. I spoke with her just a couple of days ago of Faunalytics. Hey, uh, Joe Anderson is an advocate for animals and empirical research. Her experience encompasses a wide range of social science research methods and topics, as well as advanced training in statistical analysis. Joe became Faunalytics Research Director in 2017 and since then has led and supervised studies of attitudes and behavior pertaining to animals and veganism, advocate retention, donations, lobbying efforts, and lots of other topics. Her other roles include serving as the co-leader of the RECAP, R-E-C-A-P, that stands for Research to End Consumption of Animal Products, Researcher Collective, a member of the Brooks, Brooks Institute's Animal Law and Science Working Group, an ad hoc research advisor to ProVeg and Food System Innovations, and an adjunct research professor at Carleton University in Ottawa, Canada. She has a PhD in social psychology from the University of Waterloo and completed a two-year postdoctoral fellowship at Cornell University. Joe, welcome back to the podcast. 
Thank you so much. It's great to be back. Yeah, let's tell you what we were talking right before we got started here. It's been a couple of years, but uh, I, I think it's, um, you know what, for, for people that uh, maybe maybe just didn't listen to us two and a half years ago or whatever, why don't we start by, uh, why don't you tell folks a little bit about what Fonalytics does and uh, and sort of the, the important, um, I think anyway, the uh, object of the organization. Thank you, and I think so too. I might be biased, uh, but the nature of Phonolytics is that we are an organization dedicated to providing research and data to empower animal advocates in whatever style of advocacy they are using to help animals. So I, as the research director, lead an original research program where we conduct studies, analyze data, uh, do analyses in order to pull out lessons and recommendations that can be used by advocates that are scientifically based, empirically supported, basically getting the data that we need to support the passion that we all share. And, and why, other is aspects, that, I oh, say, why, why is that important? I mean, you see, on one hand, it seems like that's obvious, but maybe not. Uh, and uh, why is that such a, uh, such an important part for the, for the movement? Absolutely. A great question. And we do all have tend to have this passion for the cause to really want to help animals. And part of what comes with that often is a strong sense of how things tended to work for us mm -hmm. um, as vegans, as animal advocates. Many of us, not everyone listening may self-identify that way. Um, but for those who do, it's very easy to get attached to things that worked for us. Uh, but work, what worked for me or what worked for you to make me care about animals, to take this on as a cause, is not necessarily the same thing that will work for everyone. Mm -hmm. In fact, there are a lot of differences between me, the research director at Phonolytics, with my background, and the sorts of people that we're often trying to talk to. Mm -hmm. So my intuitions about what worked for me, what works for my friends, the other people in my kind of bubble is not necessarily it's not data it's anecdote mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. it it can be helpful but we need evidence on a larger scale there to really mean. tell us what works it's funny you, you use the word intuition and you, you some people would say well for for these types of of objectives you know we're trying to for, for animal rights causes uh it, it almost says, well it's such an emotional um personal not not as personal but but it, it's it's an it is intuitive use word it's it is a it is a feeling thing and you you might have the reaction well why do i need why do i need data why do i need cold hard numbers when in fact all i'm trying to do is is eliminate or reduce suffering what would you say to that essentially the things that that touch us individually are not all the same and the things that that might touch somebody that I'm speaking to are not the same things that did for me. On top of that, I'm a psychologist by training. Mm -hmm. um, we have all kinds of defense mechanisms, psychological barriers in place against the idea of changing our behavior. And that's true whether you are a person on the street or a politician in Washington or the executive director of a large company. All of those people have all of those reasons firmly, firmly in place for why they want things to stay the way they are, support the status quo, mm -hmm. financial, political, personal reasons. And with all those things in place, raw emotion is not usually going to be enough to change people's minds. 
Interesting. See, you, you, I could hear that that um the opposite argument sometimes. Well, you, it, it what else could it be besides besides raw emotion? You know, like it, but but giving an example of of how uh, of how like a study or a report uh, has been used by an organization. You can be anything. Um, uh, you know, like what what is an example of how something of a, a report or uh, a data that was researched and published by Fonalytics has been successfully deployed? It's an older example, but one of my favorites is uh, the idea of uh, an organization called Challenge 22 uh, working on vegan advocacy through the through a program, 22-day program of taking a challenge. Um, and that, that direction, that entire program, um, I'm not going to take all credit for it, but part of the idea behind it came out of research that Phonalytics did almost 10 years ago now, showing one of the first pieces of data that it is super important to have a social support system around you when you try to go vegan, when you try to go vegetarian, any of those changes, you need people around you to help and support that. And so Challenge 22 took that evidence. Um, and I think it even sounds obvious now, again, with the the distance of yeah, time yeah. that of course you need social support, but mm -hmm. they built it into the program in a way that they created small groups of people to do the challenge together and have what each other to rely on um, out of this, this emphasis that we found on how important that social network was mm -hmm. without that. It's the sort of thing that's like, Oh, of course that's important, but you don't know how important yeah. or how important relative to other things. Like, do they need more information? Do they need more, other other examples um in order to succeed but it turned out the social support was yeah I, I i could see that <clears throat> that could be a recurring theme with advocacy because advocates in general would would look at that and say as you said it's obvious why do i <laughs> it's obvious why why don't you know there must be something wrong with you that it's not obvious to you right you know uh and that, I, I imagine that to some extent that's a recurring theme even Without the benefit of hindsight, you know, and you decide this particular one that's that's ten years old, but uh, I, I could see studies, uh, any of that's that you know you read it and it's like, yeah, newsflash, you know, but uh, not yeah, necessarily. that's true in science in general, and yeah. especially in yeah. social psychology in particular, um, that there are all kinds of things that when you read it, it feels obvious, but if you ask people to predict in advance which way something will turn out, they don't often have yeah. the intuition to be able to say. Right. And, and it is, I mean, it's interesting that you cite that one that's 10 years old uh, because you do have the, the benefit of hindsight that so many, so many, I mean, history is resplendent with things that of course seem obvious in the modern day, but were absolutely not obvious at all then. Right. I mean, you start with slavery or, 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 or uh, you know, equal rights or, you know, for women and voting rights. I mean, it's, it goes on and on and on. And this is, it seems to me that, that what, you know, being able to produce the, you know, the research and the, and to back it up uh, in the, in the tempest of the, the current time of right now is, provides the momentum to get these things moving, right? To get to, to have them uh, become real and to take the next step, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, how, tell me a little bit. Uh, I want I want to get into this one study that was that was recently that was just published. But you just to to sort of uh, the, this segment here. The how does Phonalytics, uh decide 
what a uh, what they're going to research. Like, give give us a, a day in the life of how far you know what what is a study, uh, what goes into actually doing the research, and then and then uh, the actual publication of it. Do you get do you get asked by certain organizations to research a uh, you know a particular topic, or does this critical mass of something else? Uh, I'm just just curious how how you decide what where to where to focus your energies. Great question. And this might be more of a year in the life than a day in the life, because our research prioritization cycle actually spans the entire year, a little bit at a time. We are in the fortunate and really fun position of being in a position in the movement where we are speaking to people who are doing all kinds of different advocacy work. There's people doing grassroots uh, protests, leafleting. There's others who are doing legal advocacy, political advocacy, um, others who are working for all protein companies. So we are in this really interesting middle space where we are able to speak to a large range of different advocates and we want to do research that reflects that range and supports as many as possible. So throughout the year, we start off by talking to advocates from different sectors and especially ones who are involved with like coalitions representing a lot of different groups um, who might have a higher level perspective on what their members and what the movement needs. And from there, we, we go through a process of narrowing it down based on our own skill set, which is in social sciences as compared to like R&D for alternative proteins or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we go further and look at how useful and actionable we think it'll be. We want things that are practical and immediately usable by groups as much as possible and that are going to hopefully help a very large number of animals, of course, at the end of the day. That's okay. that's our goal. So just, but just to be clear, uh, so you're, you you know, you do work for for advocacy, but you you know you're not you're not like on a commission or anything like that. You're in a, there, there's no inherent bias that says because such and such organization came to you and said, "Hey, give us you know give us you know we we already have the findings, give us the data to back it up." That's not what's going on here at all, right? Not at all, and and nobody really needs to take my word for it either, because uh, the way that we do our studies is we design them ahead of time. We post the study design online on a website called the Open Science Framework, where you can describe the details of a study. If it has hypotheses, say what those are up front, um, then collect the data and show what the results were after the fact so that they can clearly see the order was, you know, predictions and, and talking about the study first. We didn't do any tweaking or or data hacking or anything like that on the the opposite end because we told them beforehand what we'd be doing. And when you publish, you you publish your data, right? Right. Correct. And everything everything's all all above board. Um, uh, but on that on that topic, uh, just again to sort of get us framed, um, how does uh, how does Final Analytics is a nonprofit, right? Yes. Or, or is it okay? So you you rely on donations and and foundations and like that. There's there's no, you're not getting paid by organizations to do research on anybody's behalf, right? Mostly, yes. We do occasionally take on partner projects, um, which are a very small proportion of the money that we get. Those are ones where we do work in partnership with an organization who wants to see the results of the study. But part of the contract that we have with those organizations up front is that we are not guaranteeing you a specific set of results Uh, and that we will follow the same process we do for everything else, that it will be transparent and published regardless of how it comes out. And with the exception of those 
quite small percentage of our funding. Everything else comes from donations and grants from foundations. Uh, so yeah. Cool. Okay. So uh, th- th- that's that's a nice nice submission. All right. Now I want to look at one that was uh, there was a report that was just published. I think it was last week, and it was really I, I thought it was really interesting because uh, we are um, I don't want to say we're having an uptick uh, on on COVID, but this you, there's um, the report deals with the effectiveness. Uh, I don't want to let you talk about it, but basically the relationship between local between legislation at the local level and uh for for advocacy for animal advocacy and the its relative effectiveness um for legislation up the chain right at the state mm-hmm. and potentially the federal level and again as you read you read the the, uh, the reader report like that and then we sort of come back to the yeah but not necessarily uh tell us about the background of of what of that report and uh, let's start with that. Just what, what's the background of the report, and what were some of the what were some of the key uh, key findings that that came out of it? Yeah. So the the name of the report kind of sums up some of the the key points from it. It's called "Local Action for Animals as a Stepping Stone to State Protections," okay. and the idea of the study was to look at whether that is in fact the case, whether local action by animal advocates, whether that's um, resolutions within a city for things like meat free Mondays or um, calling on higher levels of government to do something or as actual ordinances, laws in place at the local level, whether those local actions can build up essentially and have an impact at a higher level of government. We were looking specifically at state government and we had a, a law student who led this study for us. So I should first caveat by saying I am not a lawyer. I am a okay. psychologist, um, <laughs> but I'm able to supervise the social science methods of the study, whereas she provided the law expertise. And what she did was look at the legislative history first of bills that had been debated at the state level on a variety of animal protection topics and looked for whether there was evidence in that legislative history of having talked about local action on similar topics. So okay. it gets a little complicated. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it, it, it sounds like it's uh, the, the uh, hypothesis is almost, well, uh, the most effective advocacy, it seems to me, is always uh, gr- grassroots starting from from that up, right? It rarely is effective when it, when it comes from the top down. When, when you have, when you when you achieve critical in any movement, right? When you achieve critical mass uh, at the at the populist level, and then the the our representatives, our lawmakers are are compelled to respond to that. If it comes from the top down, you know, it's 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 not as effective. Is that what what's we're sort of percolating underneath this? That that sort of thing. In other words, we're we're talking about you're talking about at the state level, but we're really talking about at the local level within the state, and then we're right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So the idea that uh, in an ideal world you might get federal legislation protecting animals that would apply across the entire country, it would apply to every person, every business, but that in actuality that's not realistic. Mm-hmm. Um, and even at the state level, it's much more difficult to get action than it is at a local level where your counselors are only representing so many people and you have a more direct line of contact with them. Mm-hmm. And of course, many municipalities are going to be more in favor of these things than 
an entire state would be. Mm -hmm. Um, So often you'll see more progressive um, municipalities taking the lead on some of these protections. And the idea of the study and what we did find was that if you can get some momentum seemingly at the local level, a number of municipalities say within a state or even in multiple states that will pass a law um, banning the sale of foie gras, banning the sale of fur, anything like that, it is more likely from what we can tell for the states above those cities um, to pass a similar law. Okay. And is, is was that what the report found? I mean, did, did, it, did it confirm that? that yeah, hypothesis? bottom line, yes. And I should qualify it a little bit that this is qualitative research that we look into the legislative mm-hmm. histories and look for evidence as much as we can, mm-hmm. but they don't lay it out for you in the way of necessarily saying we have decided to enact this bill because it was uh, of course yeah, yeah. yeah. um yeah. so as, as much as we can tell yes there is evidence that when it's occurred at the local level first and when that is brought up during bill deliberations that that is impactful that, that state level legislators care what's happening okay. in localities yeah that's not that's not always the case i was as mentioning as we begin to lead yeah. into this that the you know covid and I was thinking was I was as I was reading the summary of the report. I mean, you have this concept called preemption, and I was uh, reminded of uh, I believe it was Florida, Texas, maybe a couple others, where local municipalities were trying to pass um, mask, you know, mask regulations, uh, only to have them uh, basically disallowed because because legislation already existed at the at the state level, either mm-hmm. from either from the governor or or the state legislature. And so even though the municipalities, the local governors were or school districts were trying to say, hey, wear a mask, uh f- for whatever reason, uh the, the higher the, the the state authority said, no, 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 you can't do that. How did that play into the study? Yes, it definitely did play in because uh particularly in the area of quote unquote, animal husbandry practices, um, essentially keeping animals and farming them for food or clothing or whatever else. Um, Those tend to be areas where states have laws preempting, preventing local municipalities from making laws on those topics. Mm -hmm. So your San Francisco, your Austin, Texas, they don't have the ability, even if they want to, to create a law about how animals in their area are treated on farms in those animal husbandry situations. They just are not legally able to. So the most that they can do in those situations is to do what's called a non-binding resolution where they can declare essentially that their city cares about this issue and wants to see change from the state legislature. And they're essentially calling on them to make that change, but it has no legal binding power. It's just a declaration of their will essentially okay and did that did that um did was that uh, a major component of of the of the, the study and what you found in the research or was it uh was it kind of an uh just a, as an aside in other words it was h- how impactful i guess is what i'm saying does the topic of of preemption uh play what type of role does it play in this it makes it hard to study and and to act on of course um any law around directly helping farmed animals. Mm-hmm. It makes it very difficult to do that, uh, to build up momentum at a local level and go up to the state level because the local level just can't make those laws in the first place. So in terms of the research, what we ended up looking at more was areas where local municipalities do have more power that are related areas, but not 
directly affecting uh, those topics as much. So I mentioned the sale of foie gras, for instance, which mm -hmm. was one that we looked at uh, where municipalities were able to ban the sale first and to be impactful on uh, state level action there. Uh, and you can also look at other similar topics like uh, the sale of fur. Um, we also looked even at puppy and kitten mills, which, you know, on the surface, those are companion animal issues. It's completely different. But then if you think about it, of course, there are animals that are essentially being farmed for yeah. for human usage. Yeah. So yeah. You, yeah, it's interesting, you know, and this is slightly off topic, but you, you think about our, the, the American model um, for how, how law, you know, the constitutional model and this whole history of states' rights. In other words, states always have or per, per, perceived to have autonomy over legislation. That is, if not, you know, that can a federal, can federal legislation uh, supersede state legislation? And I guess there's been all kinds of, again, neither one of us are lawyers, right? But <laughs> historically, you know, uh, I guess there's there's been lots of Supreme Court cases. We have an amendment, you know, what where does... But the, the state has a degree of autonomy, but that model doesn't trickle down. I hate to use that word, but it doesn't trickle down from below the states. In other words, there is no implied uh, uh, autonomy at the municipal, at the city or the, munici at the municipal level, uh, as there is uh, corresponding to the state to the federal level, right? Mm -hmm. um, and you would think maybe uh, one of these days, <laughs> and I'm wondering if that is. Um, do all is that universal across all states because if there might be some states where in fact the concept of preemption doesn't exist i, I again off topic but uh do you, do you know of any offhand? i don't know offhand but i don't think probably so. not yeah. i i think that all 50 states have some version of the right to farm for instance uh -huh. um that would preempt i believe local municipalities from from creating laws on those subjects but yeah i wish my uh uh, partner yeah. here yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> wasn't we're here to answer that one all right so there's a, there's a couple other interesting aspects that came out of the out of this report um one of them again this is sort of it's funny we have a recurring themers of, of the uh of the well yeah <laughs> but uh persistence uh persistence is um you would think well yeah but describe what you found in the report in terms of the research and what the what the effectiveness of persistence is Yes. So what we found there was, actually, you know what, I'm going to describe it in terms of my own process for okay. supervising this research was, at first, I was thinking, as Precious, uh, the, the lead author on this was digging things up, my thought process started with, this isn't going to look good. Um, there's not going to be any evidence because the first few things that I reviewed, it was all this didn't pass, that didn't pass. Um but then what I realized was through that process of reviewing the research that the same occurred with the actual work that was being done, that a number of bills did not pass on the first effort. Some didn't even yeah. pass on the second, but they do pass on the third. Um, or they uh, go through a lengthy court case in, in some cases, and it takes a while to get through that. But in the end, it it does come out well. So I think, yes, people are aware that the legal system is slow and that legislation is slow, mm -hmm. but you can really see it in this report when you just look at the dates on things that for the, the timescale of the people working on it, it probably feels 
very slow. Yeah. But as somebody looking back at the end and seeing the dates from before things happened to after things happened to protect animals, yeah, it's yeah. actually kind of rewarding. Well, and I, particularly in the in the animal rights uh, movement, the history it's it's a long an old movement, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I've spoken frequently on on the on the podcast that that other movements have uh, have. Uh, leapfrog another animal reference here have, have have come in later in the game got their success and moved on well we're, we're still sort of plodding along the animal, the animal rights movement is but um that that is that's the nature of this i'm full of puns here nature of this piece I, i'm thinking of um you know we're, we're speaking for the purpose of this study of of legislation right of, mm-hmm. of what it takes to get legislation you know it's the, the proverbial act of congress uh one of uh, one of my our frequent guests is uh, is um, the Non Human Rights Project, but they've been working on it from the judicial perspective, um, and trying to get trying to get court cases and basically through uh, habeas corpus. Uh, but uh, that's that's even slower. That that is a, that is a long and long and hard. And in fact, they they consistently get challenged to say, well, why are you here in the courts? Go take it up with your legislature, you know. Uh, but in any case, it is a long a long process and. Uh, it's it's interesting to see it to see it quantified, right? Which is which what your study did to say it's not just anecdotal. This is this is this is what we're up against, and it is it's a mm-hmm. long long haul, right? It is for sure, yeah. and we have other research ongoing at the same time, not published quite yet, looking at advocates fighting against subsidies um, in various mm-hmm. ways, trying to mm-hmm. reform them, and similarly, there just anything involving the law whether it's legislation or yeah. litigation it yeah. just it takes time it takes time yeah. and and so perseverance wins um one, one one last aspect of the of the study animal protection issues are at varying stages of success and are subject to different challenges again sort of a broad statement and and journalistic uh what, what what's going on there like what's uh what do you what do you mean by different challenges and different uh, <laughs> the the preemption is a great example of one challenge that applies very particularly to animals who are being farmed mm-hmm. uh the, the that is very difficult to overcome by working at the local level because of the reasons that we were talking about um other states uh have or rather other other issues have had more success because they don't battle against preemption um and my hope is that by working on related issues first, for instance, banning foie gras, starting with that one small, particularly cruel, potentially issue, uh, that it's getting these things on the radar. So mm-hmm. you see California is definitely a leader in mm-hmm. uh, banning foie gras sales, mm-hmm. um, also fur sales. And so things like that have made some progress. But one that I particularly wanted to call out as something that I find a hopeful and having a lot of momentum is uh, the spread of resolutions throughout the U.S. to do with plant plant-based procurement and meat reduction policies. And procurement might not be a familiar term to all of your listeners. So I thought I thought you were going to go down ag gag. I thought you were setting me up for ag gag, but this I is was not. Complete. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, I know just... it's it's a little less. Um, uh, sexy than egg egg potentially, but plant-based procurement, the idea that governments will buy animal products from farmers and producers. Uh, so farmers and producers are almost incentivized to overproduce to farm more animals and more product than they need to because governments will buy whatever they have left over. Okay. So these 
these goals throughout different municipalities are encouraging local governments to start walking the walk because a lot of them are already talking about the importance of environment and climate change and being greener cities and part of green and climate change prevention is Mm -hmm. is obviously going more plant-based preferably entirely plant-based but let's start small right um so (laughs) more and more cities are taking on procurement this this idea of what the government buys to give to its own people and to institutions that it supports like hospitals and schools so putting more plant-based meals into into prisons even hospitals schools um really supports moving resources away from animal farming and toward plant-based. So it de-incentivizes, it doesn't take away the subsidy, but it de-incentivizes it. Is that kind of where, what, what we're suggesting? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's a, it's a kind of indirect subsidy and, and that that's something we get into more in the, the report we're working on now. But in terms of this one, what you really see is that uh, a lot more cities just in the past few years have taken on uh, pledges essentially to increase their plant-based procurement, to put in place veg days um, or green mm-hmm. Mondays, those sorts of things. Um, and that it seems to have a lot of momentum. There's a national program that helps to support that and guide different municipalities in putting their own in place. And I think that kind of momentum is what we really need in order to make a larger scale change. Fascinating. That, that I, That's, that's, that's a trend that could be uh mm-hmm. and uh, is that a study that you, you you're uh tipping your hat you got one in the works here <laughs> the one behind the scenes is is one looking at at subsidies different ways of combating them and yes uh that'll be coming out in january awesome. by our, our researcher andrea so huh? okay cool more details well, to come. <laughs> yes all right oh yes just uh stay tuned right uh yeah. excellent all right listen we're we're out of time here um why don't you tell people if they don't know well uh, again uh where can get more information about phonolytics where can they get some of the, the results of uh of your studies your your papers your findings and is there any fee for them uh give us the whole scoop there Great intro. Thank you. It is funnelytics.org and all of our most recent uh, reports are are pinned on our homepage so you can find them there. There's also a donate button. We love when you use that, of course. Um, and there is no fee for any of the services that we provide. We have pro bono office hours even where people can come in, drop in face to face, ask questions about the research, help finding data that they need. Uh, you can access, of course, all the reports that the research team puts out. And we also summarize academic, uh, less lay-friendly articles in more user-friendly, advocate-friendly terms so that people can use those to support their work as well. Wonderful. And and it's um, when you you have all the archives, like every every report that was ever researched and published by Phonolytics is is up there. You just dig for it and and uh, and you have a search button and all that all that stuff. You can go find it. Right. Absolutely. We Excellent. have a page for our original research and then the library has coming up on five thousand summaries wow. of academic wow. pieces. Wow, congratulations. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well when, when that five thousand one gets published, we have to have uh we have to do do a little party for it or something. Celebration. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. yeah. All right. Listen to Joe Anderson. Uh, she's the research director of uh, faunalytics.org. Joe, thank you so much for your time. We'll have to stay in touch. Thank you. It's been great. Okay. A quick break. And then we're going to be joined by Dr. Tom Picard of All Pets House Calls. He's going to fill us in on some unbelievable 
<laughs> Unbelievable parallels between uh, animal COVID and human COVID. We'll be right back. It shouldn't happen to man's best friend, but it does. Take a drive down a country road or a city street and you'll see them. Dogs left to spend their entire lives in solitary confinement, trapped at the end of a chain or inside a small pen. There's no crueler punishment for these social pack animals who need and deserve love, companionship, scratches behind the ears, and walks around the block. Please let your dogs live inside. Make them part of the family. For more information, visit PETA.org. All right. Well, we are back, and I'm really happy to uh, – we don't do this enough, but um, every once in a while, uh, my partner, uh, Dr. Tom Picardo, all pets house calls, is our featured guest, which will happen today. And uh, he, he has uh, some really fascinating information, uh, results of a annual conference of fellow veterinarians that took place uh, just a few weeks ago at University of Pennsylvania. Dr. Tom, welcome back, man. Well, thank you much. Yeah. So, all right. So this is, this was uh, now, first of all, let's, let's back into this. So this conference, uh, is this an annual, I mean, COVID aside, which is our topic here, but, uh, is this, is this like an annual event with uh, one of many? Yes. Yeah. This is the Penn conference sponsored by the university of Pennsylvania, but it's one of about a billion out there. Yeah. Uh, was it, um, and I know COVID is the overarching thing. What uh, was it virtual? Was it or, or was it a whole bunch of vets in the in an auditorium? It or? was both, uh, and which is nice because uh, I think anymore a lot of these conferences are going to have both a live and virtual aspect where you can watch the stuff at any time you want, even live or after the fact online, which mm -hmm. is great because you can have speakers come who might not normally be able to make it. Uh, and you can have people see stuff that happens at meetings that they might not normally have been right. able to make. Best of both so, worlds for sure, right? Yeah. All right. So, so our topic here was right on cue was was COVID. Uh, COVID's quite quite broad, but we we've sort of talked throughout the throughout the, the years now since we we've, we've been wrestling with this of uh, sort of around the edges here of, of what is the real deal with with vaccines for for our pets, vaccines for other animals, and and the the prospect of of the the um you know those vaccines to the you know to the human side so this was this was what this conference was about right and, and it, it seems like from from a little bit that that uh, we've talked about there is a lot of news coming out so um i'll sit back shut up and t tell me about <laughs> There's a lot of very interesting stuff in this um, you know, some of it will come across as bad news, but I think ultimately it's going to be good news. So hang in there. Okay. Um, one is it's becoming more and more clear that probably every animal out there can get COVID-2, COVID, you know, 2019 and can spread it to us and vice versa. Okay. That's, that's the bad news part. And, um, and is it um, symptomatically for them for, for, for the moment? If we, if we, if we just isolate, forget, forget we know what it does to us. Um, it, is it uh, as deadly? Such a broad question. Is, is it as potentially as deadly it's, to them? Uh, it's, it's nearly identical to ours in okay. many, many ways, if not most. Okay. And, you know, in some ways though, the good news part of that is that their vaccines that they have already being injected for the past year or so it's probably going to be where we end up because there, I've already been seeing, you know, and I think you're seeing even in the news as of even today that 
there's some problems with the Moderna and Pfizer and these other mRNA vaccines that they're great, but they're not getting the longevity out of the vaccine. And these ones that have been developed through the drug company Zoetis uh, is a different type of vaccine. It's based on purifying the proteins of that spike uh, of the halo of the coronavirus mm-hmm. uh, and injecting that back in as a, it's a, it's a killed scenario. It's not a live virus. And that's how they get their immunity as opposed to this mRNA method that we've been using mostly. Um, Excuse me. They started developing this in 2021, I believe, or it started to get it out. The actual platform for this has been around for a decade because they started developing these vaccines 10 years ago with SARS and MERS and the other aspects of these. And so that's why it was a relatively fast switch over to these various vaccines, because a lot of the work had been done. So so a lot of the stuff that we heard, I don't, I don't mean to interrupt, but, but this is kind of curious with um what was a project uh, warp speed right when when we were really really all, all hands on deck trying they had a head start is kind of what you're saying uh, they had a 10-year head start luckily for us okay yeah. <laughs> so uh but what zoetis was doing was they were uh manufacturing or developing their vaccine for dogs and cats and some other companion animals when they got requested by the u.s department of agriculture uh to focus on developing this for the mink industry. Now, I didn't even know the mink industry was such a huge thing anymore, but the North American mink industry was getting devastated by COVID. They lost millions of mink, you know, and the morality of mink industry is all different subject, but uh, these poor animals were getting devastated. And uh, so they switched over from focusing on dogs and cats to them. And they found great success in this in stopping infection and and minimizing infection in the mink industry. And they started then being requested to uh, bring this over, develop it for zoo animals and other wildlife that are raised by people as well as in research. And they ended up uh, uh, 325 different species have been vaccinated with this vaccine so far, which is unprecedented. It's, it's never been done in vet medicine ever before. Is it the same vaccine to all these species? All of them, the exact same one. The only difference is, and it's against the companies, like they can only, they have to recommend a certain dose. They're given a larger dose for elephants and a smaller dose for really tiny animals. But it's the exact same thing. It's never been seen before. 325 and growing species. And they found that the snow leopards, for whatever reason, are particularly vulnerable uh, to COVID, as well as a lot of the big cats. For some reason, they're very susceptible to it. And it greatly helped them. Uh, There has been Ever since the vaccination has been happening, there's been no animal deaths due to it if they've been vaccinated. There's been no reactions to the vaccine. The only reactions in humans who were three humans who were accidentally stuck themselves with the vaccine, and even they didn't really have just a minor reaction at the injection site. So it's extremely safe from everything they're getting back. And efficacy, uh, I mean, it's working, obviously, is what you're saying, because there there hasn't been any deaths. that's really amazing. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, when you say unprecedented, I mean, medicines to go or anything like that. I mean, we have some basic things that are crossed, like certain antibiotics, I guess, 
But even that, I, I mean, I, I don't take the same antibiotic that my cat does, right? Many times we do. <laughs> it's yeah. actually, you know, 75% of the diseases, the diseases that people get are also animal diseases. So we, we're very similar. So what does this mean? I, I mean, uh, where, where are they, where are they? Well, the, they are just, they just released uh, in the past, you know, just probably in the past month or two, 80,000 more doses of this to be distributed among zoos and aquariums, even yeah, yeah, aquatic animals that uh, at varying, you know, aquariums uh, have been getting it too. Wait, and I didn't know if, if fish and, and turtles can get, can get COVID? sharks and all of them. I, I, when I'm saying, I think we're going to find every animal gets this practically. It's going to be pretty close to that. It's, it's that, that widespread. Wow. Uh, the problem, the problem is for our dogs and cats and, you know, other domestic pets uh, or, you know, companion pets like ferrets and things, mm -hmm. uh, domestic animals uh, like horses and cows, sheep, goat. The problem with them is not that the vaccine doesn't work in them. It would work very well. But politically, it's forbidden to be used in them so far. It's not been approved by the USDA oh, wait a minute, because wait a minute. there's all this controversy with the dumb political stuff that not enough human beings have had problems getting it from dogs and cats and ferrets, et cetera. So they don't want to approve it because of all the political ramifications, wow, wow, wait, wait, which wait, is okay. also unprecedented. We've never had a, a vaccine in veterinary medicine that could help patients of ours and we can't use it i'm for political i'm just kind of lost <laughs> wait a minute so there's I, I mean political always ties into the the almighty dollar here so we're we're willing to invest or we're it's not the money it's it, not the it's controversy of all the loonies in this country but I, I, if if i i don't understand the controversy if the uh why would it be okay to give it i mean I don't want to take the dollar, the, the minks. You talk, I mean, you mentioned that, that like, you know, pull my hair out with that because what did we do? We, we God forbid, we, we lost all the minks to COVID so that we can't kill them in, you know, three months later to make, make a coat out, out of them. Like how, how, how it's ironic. Is, right. But, um, but I mean, you mentioned 325 species, but not dogs and cats. No, I'm not following it. <laughs> not because following. Uh, the U S department of agriculture so far, does not want to get in the middle of a political controversy over this because of the corresponding. Well, one, you would have then, I suppose, veterinarians uh, hoping and insisting that their clients get their pets vaccinated to protect their pets as well as themselves because it can be spread back and forth. Mm -hmm. And you would have 30 to 40 percent of their clients probably storming out of the office, not wanting to do it because you know their their oh, belief oh, 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 QAnon mean, and all this nonsense. You mean it's the, it's the anti-vaxxers? Uh, yes, on your dogs and cats. Yes. Oh God! Oh no! Also unprecedented. Oh, oh. They they so the 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 man the doctor and uh, doing this uh, who's involved in this was saying that they get calls every single day from veterinarians who know that they're dealing with a COVID dog or cat or ferret or what other companion animal, they trying to protect the animal and their owners and they cannot get the vaccine because it's not approved. So it's illegal to use it. Yeah. Okay. Absurd. So, so 
if I'm following this, this is so nuts, right? If if an anti-vax, a human anti-vaxxer has the option, if they so choose, of not getting the vaccine, mm-hmm. power to you, you know, whatever. Um, and wouldn't wouldn't that translate into a pet owner can also choose not to give his dog or cat the vaccine right true okay i think the problem lies at the u.s department of agriculture and who and how many people of these type are making the decision so it's likely they are making this political decision because they don't want to get involved they don't want the grief or maybe they believe this i I, you know they don't they don't really i don't know because you know if you could say well all right approve it and just leave it up to the pet owners whether you do it or not. Like, like yeah. what is what is the issue yeah. here? You right? would think it's there's wow. proof that it's saving animals of uh, a, a couple hundred other types of species, but not for our domestic pets. So, you know, good luck until. God, you know, his only advice was for us as you know veterinarians and others to contact the USDA and voice our opinion. So I will do so. But for what it's good, for what good it's worth. It, how about? Know, uh, I'm curious. So with, with this, so uh, with this broad of a um, population, right, 325 species, uh, there's an international aspect to it, right? I mean, it's not just. Uh, it, it, has it been approved in other countries? I believe that he was only discussing the U.S. Uh, because of his relationship with the USDA and their company, uh, uh, as far as doing it in this country but i would think that for humane reasons and others they're already probably shipping it out overseas if they have enough is it only you know, one they, man, is it just the one manufacturer only zoetis they're the ones who created it that's an american company yes well and it's manufactured it, in, in, the, in the states too yeah yeah it's, i've only been hearing it about it in the u.s but the other aspect, I guess, is kind of a, a good news aspect is that he also pointed out historically, uh, like, for example, the Russian flu. We, we, we don't hear about that much because it happened in 1890. Uh, but the Russian flu is also a coronavirus, much like we've been dealing with. It killed over a million people in 1890. And that was like about 10 percent of or six, seven, almost 10 percent of the world population at that point, because it was only one point five billion people then uh so that's a lot and now today that russian flu is one of our common cold viruses Hmm. so that's the good news part Mm -hmm. and they found that uh you know well they know that coronaviruses are about 20 percent of our cold viruses common cold they've just been weakened over time you know then you have the rhinoviruses Mm -hmm. the one you're hearing about in the news anymore rsv respiratory syncytial virus parainfluenza but still 20 to 30 percent of the cold viruses we don't even know the virus that causes it still so you know, it could be a coronavirus that wasn't known or isn't known yet is, is the um is so this is so part two here so is the the virus that has been so effective with these 325 species and the the technology you mentioned the approach is different than what we've than what we've been doing with Pfizer, Moderna, and, and you know J and J, which is essentially you know I'm not a, I'm a little uh, that much of time, but it, it's an RNA 
type of, of an approach as opposed to sort of the way we attacked uh, polio or smallpox. It was a very different approach. Uh, right. It, Although it's very similar. The, all, all these methods are really just a way of delivering information to the areas of our body that will then respond and make our immune response happen, make antibodies to the virus. So okay. they, it's just the only differences between them all is how it gets there. Okay. And uh, so if it has not been approved for our companion animals, is the technology um, on its way to us, to humans? Does this? Yeah, I, it's it's already there. And, and I think what you're going to find is that in order for us to, you know, have more long lasting immunity so we can not have to get this every six months to a year, they might eventually switch to this type of uh, uh, vaccine that may be giving longer lasting immunity. Right now, the animals getting it, they're getting it once a year, except for the really large animals like elephants, they get it twice a year. And the really susceptible ones like the big cats, they're getting it twice a year as well. Mm. But what's interesting mm. also about this is that they're discovering more and more uh, the cause of the way it, it, it gets in the body and how it affects things. And there's a, uh, enzyme that we have in our bodies uh, called furin, F-U-R-I-N. It's, it's a protease enzyme. It helps break down protein. And most viruses get into our body usually by being swallowed and, and they're activated actually by the enzymes in our digestive system that break things down. And they know that, quote unquote, know that as a virus. And that's how they get activated. Whereas they found furin is the enzyme in our body. It's in almost all tissues of the body. That's the one that activates the proteins in the uh, uh, coronavirus and activates the, the spike that attaches to that mm -hmm. cell gets activated by this furin. What they've also found is that furin is much more prevalent in older people than younger people. And they think that that's why older people had and have and have had more problem with the virus. Mm. And they're finding more and more about this furin. It's, it's, it's responsible for the aging process that leads to dementia. It's involved in really? the aging of our blood vessels. And I, I suspect from everything I'm reading, they're going to find that this plays a critical role in just aging in general. Interesting. The, the silver lining to, to, to COVID, huh? Um, we what, could what, find the fountain of youth, right? <laughs> what about the variants? Uh, I mean, one of the things I feel like we, you know, ever since the outbreak, we've been chasing it, right? We got Delta and Omicron and blah, 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 yeah. and, it's, and it seems like, um, short of uh, it doesn't the boosters, the you know, the, the Pfizer and Moderna boosters have not necessarily been tailored to the to the variants, they've just it's kind of just a re upping more of the same. Is this this new one, um this deals with the variants and it, it has uh it has yes and no they they actually have been uh, uh using bivalent vaccines they're called where they've been using the original like wuhan one uh variant and adding uh other some of these other variants to it in the various vaccine formats we've gotten but what they're finding is it's not working really a whole lot better than the original now they say like 15 times more uh, antibody production in the original versus 17 times more with this new one. Well, it still sounds good to me if it's yeah. better. Yeah. Um, 
but as far as the variants themselves, like we're up to like, I think about the 18th variant they found in deer. They're on their 76th variant Holy. in deer. Oh my yes. God. Oh my God. <laughs> I, I had no idea. And are, are, are the variants, uh, deadly uh, that's not the word but uh, well they're they're generally causing uh you know severe disease in the unvaccinated and death you know probably at a level similar to you know with humans mm-hmm. um and the vaccinated ones are not dying they're getting they're getting better they found a lot of these zoo animals that were uh, are, have been gotten vaccinated or vaccinated as they started to show symptoms they clear it up in two to three days if they get it amazing <laughs> yeah so even faster than us wow you know wow. and they're they're, they're they're they've been getting two doses three weeks apart the, the various animals so and then like i said the boosters every six months to a year depending on their size and, important, yeah. if, if you don't mind me or do you know like i mean 325 species millions and millions and millions of doses is it the zoos that are paying for it is it the uh it's uh, the no zoetis so has been giving all this away what? Yeah, it's for humane, humane usage. Yeah, so obviously, wow. you know, the plan is they do a lot of other stuff. They're they're involved in you know lots of humanitarian and animalitarian <laughs> causes like this. Um, and uh, <laughs> that's a good word. <laughs> you know, it's it's yeah. part of the what you know these evil drug companies are not as evil as people make them out to be. No. They do a lot of good. You know, yeah, if it you, wasn't for them, we'd all be dead. You know, it's a fine. I had years ago, long time. I I I worked for um. Well, what I guess what they would now be called uh, Sanofi Aventus or whatever. At that time, it was it was Herx Marion Russell. That that's going to date me. And I had a contract with them, and I was what you know I was doing IT, but I, I really got to be uh, I, I got to be on not on the front lines, but I, I was in there, and I was working with them. And you know, it's a long it's it's a fifteen to seventeen year cycle from idea to market. That's and a heavy millions a, upon millions, millions of hundreds dollars, of right? millions, hundreds of millions of dollars. Right. So of course these things are going to be expensive when they start charging for them because yeah. there's so much has gone into it. They and have if, to recoup. And that, if they right? weren't this expensive, what would be their motivation to continue inventing these things? You, you can't survive under that, yeah. you know, economic plan forever. Right. You know, right. They've given away a hundred thousand doses of this vaccine so far. You know, at some point they'll need to start charging for it. But also the reason they've given this away is because they're now getting the feedback from thousands and thousands of cases uh, of vaccines given to these animals, using it for their own continued research on their vaccine. So mm-hmm. it actually is. Mm-hmm. It's almost like they're doing a, a, a test, you know, with well, these animals. I mean, yeah, it's it's an invest. You know, well, it's yeah, I mean, they, 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 they want to recoup, obviously. You know, it's funny. We're just bleeding over into themes that we've had previously on the show but you know we've we've talked uh, we've had several guests where we talk about that that cycle that 15 year cycle and and a lot of that is uh the the many years are spent on the really ineffective uh testing on animals which has proven to be really ineffective right because you you inject these things you you try your drug out on a mouse you try your drug out on a beagle and that's not a human so the the there's so the 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 methods that uh, that are coming along here to to better to reduce the the to market time that's a win win too right because you, we're hopefully uh, reducing some of the the abuse that's going on with 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 animal testing and you're getting these things to market sooner produ- presumably 
uh, at a better better cost because now the the, the market the, the companies don't have to spend 15 years maybe they just spend seven right they, they because they don't have to go through that entire phase of of, uh, of animal testing so it all it all sure. sort of yeah i mean it's all connected um wh- where does it um what's your sense of you know at the end of the conference here um where where are they going with this uh well i believe the- you're going to find a lot more you're going to be hearing about furin f-u-r-i-n this protease enzyme uh they have seen that uh people who are they 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 think that they can determine or at least predict people who may have a worse outcome if they get covid or other probably diseases as well by measuring their serum in their blood their furin levels and people who have higher furin levels we're going to have more of a problem with viruses like this that use that system. And there's plenty of other viruses that use furin as the means of getting into the body and attacking. And they're going to find that one, uh, using furin and stopping furins in things is going to help with preventing some of these things. They found that the reason why they initially saw that smokers we're having less problems sometimes with COVID was that smokers have less furin because there's the smoking damages, the furin protease in their body. And yet that actually helps protect them from COVID in some cases. So <laughs> well, very I, I, fascinating. It was stuff weird that, when the, when the uh, vaccines first came out, they got to go to the front of the line. I remember the, the, the people that like the smokers got to get, because they were at that point at that time, they were thinking they were, they were more uh, the worst, vulnerable. Worst risk, yes. Right. And some and, of them probably were, but they probably have other problems too. Yeah, you know, yeah. But they're finding this furin is involved in so many disease processes as well as like uh, dementia. They're seeing elevated levels in older people who have dementia. Uh, they're seeing elevated levels in various types of cancers, elevated levels in all of the aging processes of blood vessels and all that they've been studying. Uh it's it's universal throughout every tissue in the body they've studied so far and it's probably responsible for it's probably not the only thing involved but it was only just discovered in 1990 so and they're only just starting to learn more about it and you know covid speeded up that process yeah. so and it's, there are it's some silver linings it's a it's a protein or it's an enzyme it's it's, it's a it's a protease enzyme it's an enzyme that breaks down protein oh and that when it when the when the COVID virus, among many other viruses, use it. Uh, it breaks down this outer area of the virus and makes the uh, the transmission part just take off. That's how it goes through the body. And it goes into every type. That's why you see it in heart, lungs, muscles, kidney, you name it. You're seeing it in people, neurologic problems. It's all because of the furin is in all these tissues. You know, it's funny. It goes back to when we were first talking about this, like, it's kind of scary in a way how intelligent if that's the right word the bug is to figure this out to manage to manipulate and exploit this little this furin that we didn't even know about because it it could figure it could figure out a way to to do that and to you know manipulate and survive and and multiply do what it's it's scary it's scary what what uh with those little critters can yeah and yet right? the beautiful thing about viruses if you can think of it that way is that they don't want you know assuming they had some sort of self-awareness if we talk about it anthropomorphically this way but <laughs> the viruses don't want to die 
if they kill all their hosts, that's the end of them too. So evolutionarily, it's it's so their advantage to become more highly transmissible but less virulent and deadly. And that's what they've seen in so many. That's why we have all all of these coronaviruses and other types of viruses that cause the common cold were at one time deadly viruses. And we're hoping, of course, that Corona is uh, Corona of the current one becomes the same. That's what they. That's the term when we go when we go from epidemic to pandemic to endemic. Endemic, right? yes. So yeah. that's the hope, and it's it's already showing signs of that. I I think if everybody had been on board with vaccinations and maybe masking and things like that. Uh, we possibly would already be to the point where we're seeing more and more weakening of this virus. You would have seen it be becoming more widespread transmission of it, but less virulence. But the big but in the room, mm-hmm. you know, that's just so frustrating. Yeah. Because yeah, you have all these people who, uh, you know, go to Facebook University and Twitter University, and <laughs> they don't know anything. No. And, and what's sad is that they they know whatever they know is so ridiculous, and they spread it like a virus. It, it's Un- the, unfortunately, it's the, it doesn't get weaker. I, I was going to say it's the real embodiment of knowing enough to be dangerous. <laughs> exactly. I mean, that, that, that that's where that expression comes from. Hey, you know, I, I think what we'll do. Uh, by the way, thanks thanks very much for this. Has been really great. Um, if you can. Uh, I'm going to throw some some uh, additional information up on on the website on my website to if people if people want more certainly um uh, anything about a furin and this research um but if if um maybe uh you know if you have some links or something that you want want me to throw up there or or mention it, if there my number some... my sorry my one number one advice would be for to people to email telephone send a postcard whatever you want to do to the U.S. Department of Agriculture and ask for these vaccines to be approved for my dog, my cat, my ferret, my cow. Okay, that's the only way it's going to really happen, probably at this point. Like one of these, uh, what do you call them when we um, the petition online with these mass? Uh, there's 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 a dozen websites you know, that'll do that for you. You know, they start a petition drive online. Mm-hmm. That maybe that's what it's gonna take, you know? Yeah. Uh, and yeah. and veterinarians like we're most their people are veterinarians are scrambling, but there's nothing we can do. We can't get the vaccine because we can't legally use it. It's ridiculous. So you lose ridiculous. your license. Ridiculous. Uh all right. Well, on that sobering note, uh, Dr. Tom Picard, all pets house calls. Uh we'll we'll stay on top of this. Uh this is really really insightful and uh and informative and uh you know keep keep it keep us keep us abreast of any developments and and we'll certainly do our part and see if we get rally the public to harass the usda huh absolutely all That's right the way things get done very good thanks thanks a lot tom dr tom picard all pets house calls all right that's our uh show for this week i want to thank my guests uh joe anderson and dr tom picard and as always, love to hear from you with your comments, ideas, or suggestions. Or if you got a topic you'd like Dr. Picard to just just check out theotheranimals.com. You can also follow us on Twitter and Facebook at The Other Animals. I want to wish everyone a very happy holiday season, happy Hanukkah, Merry Christmas. I'm going to encourage you also to go back, if you'd like, and check out the, I, I did it for the last two or three years now, my interview with um, with Jimmy Webb who composed and produced The Animal's Christmas, a wonderful, wonderful piece of music he did with Art Garfunkel and Amy Grant. 
the London Symphony, Boys Choir. It's, it's just this magnificent work that doesn't get doesn't get enough play. I'm going to leave you with one of one of the excerpts from there. But the uh, the actual interview is up either on on my website or over here on the on the Spotify podcast as well. So uh, again, happy holidays, and don't forget, find a belly to rub. <laughs>